Well, hello and good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church, everyone. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and if it's your first time joining us, you could be joining us here in person uh, or online. I just want to offer you a special welcome and thank you for uh, worshiping with us this morning. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Philippians. It's kind of our, our summer series that we're working on together uh, as a church, and we're kind of nearing the end of the book. Um, we're, in the, we're, we're entering the last chapter of it today. And what I want to do is I want to read uh, the passage we'll be talking about today. We'll pray, and then we'll spend some time uh, unpacking what it means for us as followers of Jesus. So Philippians 4, verses 2 to 3, it's just two verses today. Uh, It was nice to only have two verses to prepare for this week. Um, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning to uh, hear from your word. Um, and I pray that as we do uh, hear from your word, that the, the, the words that would impact us would not be the words coming from my lips, but would come from your spirit, God, because those are the, uh, the words that we need to move us, to give us wisdom um, and, and revelation, to more deeply know what it means to follow the Lord Jesus in all of our lives. So that's our prayer this morning as we enter into this time of study of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, in our family, I'm certainly not the ballet expert. That would be my wife, Julie. Uh, She actually grew up dancing, uh, doing a lot of different styles of dancing, but ballet is one of the ones that she did. Um, And so... Uh, I've picked up some, some stuff around ballet from her. Um, she likes to kind of talk about it. Uh, she'll do some different moves for me sometimes, and then she'll try to you know, get me to do the moves with her, and it, it's about as bad as you'd expect. Uh, it, it's not pretty all the time. Um, but um, what I've learned about ballet, and, and maybe you know this, maybe you're familiar with ballet, maybe uh, not so much, is that there are sort of these different uh, movements that are kind of basic to ballet. They're kind of at the heart of what ballet is. And and mastering ballet means kind of using and and becoming better and better and better at these specific movements over and over and over again. And they have names like uh, plie or uh, tendu or degage. And and what you do is at, at at the beginning of every ballet class that you take is you practice these moves at the bar. Right? You know, you, you've seen pictures maybe or, or videos of, of ballerinas and they have a bar next to a, a mirror and they're just standing there and they're just kind of going through these uh, movements. That's how they start every single class off. Um, and it's because those movements are incorporated into every single thing that they do. So every routine, it might be unique and it might have some sort of special things to it, but every routine is going to have these movements or most of them show up in some way in the routine. And so you're not going to really get better at ballet by kind of making up new moves necessarily. You're going to become a better ballet dancer by mastering and building on these basic movements, the things that you practice every single day at the bar, and that you then go and incorporate into every single new routine that you do. 
That's how ballet works. And a lot of other sports are like that, too. Um, you kind of learn basic, you know, if it's football, you learn kind of the basics of leverage, and you incorporate that into whatever type of thing you're doing, whatever position you're playing. You're going to use leverage as a way to sort of uh, gain an advantage, but you have to understand that at a fundamental level, no matter what you're doing. Now, I think it's good for us to understand that Christianity is a lot like ballet in that sense, where we're always practicing this sort of basic foundational movements, um, which are needed, and, and, and we, we have to continue to use and master to incorporate into all of the, the new, unique, different situations that we encounter as Christians. So we're going to go through our lives, and we're going to have different seasons of life. We're going to have different relationships. Um, we're going to have all these different things we're going to encounter as Christians, things going on in society maybe. And, and for us as Christians, the, the, the thing that we have to master are the basic sort of foundational principles of Christianity and figure out what it looks like to apply those movements into each new situation that we come into contact with. And so growth as a Christian means sort of mastering over and over and over again the sort of basic tenets of what we believe and figuring out what it looks like to live those out in the countless situations that we'll come into in our lives. And one of these basic movements that we have as Christians is reconciliation. And this is a concept or an idea that shows up all over the New Testament. So just a few examples here. First off, Matthew 6.12. This is from the Lord's Prayer. We as a church pray this once a month, and Christians have been praying this for centuries. Okay, This is foundational to everything sort of we understand about what Christianity is. And right in the middle of the prayer, uh, we pray, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Or here, in Ephesians 4.32, this is a command or an ethic that Paul gives to the Ephesian community. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Or here in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 19, and this is a passage that Zach talked about a little bit in his sermon last week. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, there's a common thread between all of these three, uh, three verses that we just brought up. Even though they pop up in different parts of the Bible and are, are even told by different people in the Bible. And it's, it's really simple, okay? It's something that everybody can understand, right? even young, young children can get this. There was a tear in the relationship between humans and God, right? This cosmic tear, the whole world ended up being affected by it, where we are the offenders, we're the perpetrators, and God himself is the victim. He's sort of been uh, entered into this relationship with humanity and was abused, essentially, by us kind of breaking the trust that, that he had set up between us. And so what God did is through Jesus, he stitched this tear back together again through forgiveness, reconciling the world back to himself again. And now we, living in the pattern of this, go and we stitch together tears that we help create and sometimes even ones that we didn't help create. Okay? It's very basic, very simple, and it is one of the foundational basic movements of the gospel something we're supposed to meditate on, to apply, and then reapply 
over and over and over again. And to think about is sort of something we might practice at the bar, right? Like a ballet dancer, something that we would take for, uh, as part of everything that we do. So when we come to the passage today that we're going to be going through, uh, Philippians verses 4, 2 to 3, we find an opportunity for this basic movement to be applied. So let's read it again. I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So what's going on here is, well, we don't know a lot about what's going on here. It's a pretty casual, or, or sort of, like for, for us, reference to some problem that's going on in the Philippian church. And what we know is there's two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who are in some sort of dispute. Now, we don't know what the dispute is. We have a few good guesses based on some context. Um, it's likely that these are not just two random people that Paul knows. It's a good chance that these are people who are in some position of leadership or at least are well-known in the community. And we, we do know from the beginning that the Philippian church actually had a lot of faithful women that were very involved in the church. So it makes sense that these could be two of those women. And it's maybe not some, just some personal dispute, right? Uh, maybe it, it's not so, something that is just going on between the two of them, but it could be some sort of substantive division in the church, um, something that Paul is taking really seriously, so he's urging them publicly to be of one mind because he thinks it'll be good for the whole community uh, to, 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 for them to reconcile, to be of common cause. And actually, it's really interesting in verse 3, he's not just appealing to Iodi and Syntyche, he's actually uh, uh, appealing to the whole congregation to take ownership over sort of the, the relationship between the different people in the church, to have them all kind of come alongside these two women to help them uh, to, to work out unity and harmony and to come to this place of, uh, of, of, um, of being of one mind. And notice also, again, this is a kind of a passing reference, right? And so Paul doesn't tell them, you know, Iodi, you need to do this, and Syntyche, you need to, you know, move on this sort of thing, right? He doesn't tell them what to do. And I think it's probably pretty clear that the things that we read in, you know, in those verses before, from the book of Matthew, from what Paul says to the Ephesians and to the Corinthians, these are things that they were familiar with. So Paul is, is assuming that they have the tools, they have the understanding of what they need to do in order to reconcile together, and Paul's urging them to sort of take advantage of those tools that they've already been given. Now, unfortunately, I think there is some pressure on us as a society to sort of, despite the fact that we might also have these tools, to sort of neglect them or erode them. And, and Tim Keller, he, he talked about this in, a, in an article I read recently, where he says, we, what we find ourselves living in is, is a therapeutic culture, right? Which prioritizes kind of above all else, individual autonomy and our emotional state. Things that aren't necessarily bad, but that sometimes can find expression or be brought up above all other things is the most important uh, thing that there is. And so, uh, it, what that does oftentimes is it makes the idea of forgiveness or reconciliation seem kind of unnecessary or just not very important because it doesn't necessarily contribute to those two values of autonomy and, and our emotional state. And he says that this, today forgiveness is either discouraged as imposing a moral burden on the person or at best it is offered as a way of helping yourself acquire more peaceful inner feelings of healing ourselves as hate. 
And so really the impulse behind that, even if forgiveness is the path that is taken, is to seek what adds to our self-realization or our happiness. And forgiveness, if, it, if that really doesn't contribute to that, it's kind of just something unnecessary. It's not a tool that we need to pick up and use. And so he says, and the result, and he's actually quoting a scholar here named Gregory Jones, is that most of us have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and kind of mocks grace. Yet we as Christians, we're called to reconciliation like Jesus, even if it's costly, even if it is a challenge for us. And as a church, we had several groups over the last few months that have been going through this material. It's called Be the Bridge, and it's really aimed at sort of reconciliation uh, in, in a racial sense, right? Sort of moving through the basic movements of the gospel, um, but in, in, in the realm of racial reconciliation. And one of the things that they say in the material is that true reconciliation requires sacrifice and commitment from both sides, okay? And this is something we have to realize, but if you've been following with us in the book of Philippians, we've actually talked a lot about sacrifice. We've talked a lot about dying to ourselves. And uh, I, I, you know, one of the big takeaways there, I think, is that something isn't bad if there's sacrifice for it. Okay? Instead, in the Christian view of things, sacrifice leads to life. Right? That is the pattern of the gospel that we talked about um, earlier this summer. Right? Death leads to life. And so sacrifice for us, even if it's a challenge, leads to life. And that makes reconciliation for us a holy work um, because it opens the door to a new future as it mirrors Christ. Christ's reconciliation stops the spread of sin and it opens the door uh, for the new world that God is creating and will create in Christ. And our own reconciliation as we seek to emulate Jesus contributes to that work that God is doing in the world. So what does it look like for us to follow the, these, you know, these, these basic patterns of the gospel? How do we contribute to it as well? well? Let's walk through some of these basic movements, right? Kind of almost like we're, you know, we're thinking about them, like we're practicing them at the bar, just like we're ballet dancers. Now, the first one is acknowledgement. Okay, we have to know that there's a problem if we're going to move forward and reconcile in any way. Okay? Uh, and a lot of reconciliation efforts kind of stop there, right? Because there's a failure to acknowledge that there's any issue. And, and we, in this Be the Bridge groups, we talked a lot about how awareness begins with listening to and hearing others. Again, that seems simple, but that's a real challenge for us a lot of times, right? To really go out of our way to stop and to listen to what other people have to say and be willing to internalize it. But really, this is just wisdom, okay? Like, this is not something that, you know, should be so weird to us as Christians, to be quick to listen, to be open to listen to others, to have a posture or a willingness to acknowledge um, and a willingness to sort of communicate hurt to other people. In our, we did a sermon series earlier this uh, spring um, through the, the wisdom literature, and we spent like a, a good chunk of one sermon talking about uh, something from the book of Proverbs on sort of being quick to listen. And so a couple examples here, Proverbs 10, 8, the wise are glad to be instructed, but babbling fools fall flat on their faces. And Proverbs 12.1, to learn, you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. Okay, so we should constantly be in a sort of posture of being willing to listen, being willing to learn, being willing to let others speak 
and for us to hear them clearly and to internalize what they're saying. It doesn't mean we, we, we can't disagree with them or challenge them, but we should be quick to let other people tell us what they're thinking or they're feeling so that we can internalize it and we can show them care or love by responding to it. Now, a lot of times I think we, you know, maybe we try to, you know, skip this step. We skip acknowledgement and we jump right to maybe like repentance or forgiveness, right? And we kind of are half-hearted just jumping there. And that doesn't really lead to reconciliation. And it looks, looks like this. I don't know if you're an Office fan, but um, in, in the one episode where uh, Dwight gives uh, Stanley a heart attack, he's supposed to apologize to everyone. And he shows up and he says, I state my regret. And Jim goes, you couldn't have memorized that? He reads it off a piece of paper, and Jim goes, you couldn't have memorized that? And Dwight says, I could not because I do not feel it. <laughs> um, I think a lot of times, like, that's what we, what we think acknowledge, we skip acknowledgement to get right to repentance, okay? But repentance requires real, you know, true acknowledgement in order to get to that stage of repentance, okay? So, but what is, what is repentance? What, what does it actually look like? You know, it's, it's not just regret where you feel bad for doing something. I think it includes that. I don't think it's bad that you feel regret. And it's not just ownership. Again, ownership, taking ownership over or responsibility for something you've done, um, that's a good thing too. But repentance is more than that. It's, it's turning from a path that you're on. That's a, a fundamentally what repentance is. It's saying, I'm, I'm headed in this direction, and my actions of hurting you or sinning against you show me that I'm on this path. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop myself and I'm going to turn from that path and head down another one instead. Okay, it's a confession that I am heading down a path that ultimately will, you know, if it hasn't already led to it, it will lead to the destruction of this relationship. Um, it will perhaps will lead to the, you know, uh, the, the destruction of God's work or me, maybe even myself. It's being willing to acknowledge that, to stop, and to turn around. It's saying that I went down this path when I harm somebody. And so even if it was unintentional, I need to stop myself from that. And reconciliation is not possible if there's no repentance because even if you acknowledge that you hurt someone, if you don't truly repent, that path will be taken again. And so it's fundamental for us to understand and to repent that we're turning from taking that path again. And it requires honest reflection to ask ourselves, why did I go down this path in the first place? And it ha- it's, 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 it's willing to take steps to make sure we're going down the new path instead. And in Be the Bridge, uh, another thing that's said is, as we surrender our old ways of thinking and step into a new path, God can do his work of transformation. Okay, this is when transformation starts to take place. As we ask what it looks like to walk down a new path, God will show us what that looks like. He will give us the path to take uh, that is one that is filled with grace now, that is one that is Christ-like. Now, unfortunately, right, and you guys are probably thinking this, the perpetrator does not always acknowledge or repent. That's just a challenge of the world that we live in now, okay? Things do not, you know, one person can be willing to, to make the sacrifice of trying to work down, uh, you know, reconciliation, but the other person won't do it. So does that mean nothing happens, right? Does it just stop there? Are we kind of stuck? And in a sense, we are, but I think this is important to think about too. And this is a little bit counterintuitive, but turning is not always just for the offender or the perpetrator, okay? Sometimes the one who has been wronged should ask themselves, okay, do I need to turn here? 
Now, why is this? Obviously, it's because a lot of conflict is not just because of one person, right? It's because the other person is involved in some way, too. And even if you are sort of the one acknowledging, hey, I've been hurt, and you're asking the other person to acknowledge it, it doesn't mean you're completely uh, innocent either, okay? But even if not, okay, this is something to consider. We have to be aware of how conflict works. And oftentimes what happens is someone offends another person, they harm another person, and the other person responds in the same way, okay, or out of the same impulse, basically, of what was done to them. And it creates this sort of cycle of hostility. All right? And so what we need to do when, we're, uh, when we are offended or when we are become victims many times is we need to be willing to at least turn from going down the same path as what was done to us. Now think about just a small, silly example of this, okay? Um, let's say you get cut off in traffic one day. Someone is rage driving you know, around on interstate and they cut you off and you are just, you are really upset with it. And you think, you know, I'm going to speed up and I'm going to go let this person know that I can count to one with my middle finger and, you know, let them know what you think about them doing that. And in the process, you're cutting off other people now to try to, you know, catch up to them or something like that, right? Um, and, 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 and so now you're doing basically the same thing that other people are doing. And let's say that you get home and you're in a bad mood and your spouse or your roommate comes up to you and they say, um... You know, they say, How, how's it going? And you snap at them. You get angry at them now, right? Th- think about what's happened, right? That person's sin, the person who cuts you off, that person's sin has not stayed with them, right? It has now become yours and is sort of spreading to other people, right? This is how, this is how hostility works so often, is the sin does not stay with the person who first perpetrates it, but we start, as victims, we can often internalize it, and we can start to take the same path as them now. And so, um, it's easy for us to do that, um, and we need to stop ourselves from doing it. We need to be willing to turn to stop ourselves from taking the same path that was taken by the person in the first place. Now, this is a challenge, because I think we can shove our hurt deep into our Midwestern hearts where we hope no one will ever, ever know it's there, right? Okay, we don't like to, to, to we, we don't, a lot of times we don't like to tell people we're hurt. We just want to kind of breeze over it. We don't want to rock the boat. It's a very Midwestern thing to do. But what happens when we do that is it starts to really fester, right? It starts, it, it doesn't just stay there and go away. A lot of times it sort of eats at us. Okay, And we start to become more and more defined by that as it eats away at our hearts. And for many, deep sin that is done to them gets really internalized and starts to really form them. And it can break the relationship. And, and I think about it like this. So I was just cleaning some carpets the other day, and it made me think a little bit about this. If you get to a carpet, you know, get to a stain on the carpet right away, you should be usually be able to get it out, okay? If you use a machine or, or, or the, you know, the spray or whatever, you'll get that out a lot of times. But if you wait for a while, like if you wait weeks or months or even years, stains might never come out, right? No matter what type of heavy-duty material you take at it, okay? You can go out and get the top-of-the-line carpet cleaner, and, and trust me, I've tried this. I've had jobs where I've had to do this. You cannot get stuff out that's been in there for a long time. And I think it's the same with us in our hearts a lot of times. If we're willing to, you know, immediately acknowledge our hurt to people, we can get it out pretty easily. But if we let it sit inside of us and fester, 
right? And then maybe a few years later it comes out. It is far harder to get out of our hearts because it has spent a lot of time festering within us. Okay, so it's important for us to not like our grudges, right? Because it can be easy for us to sort of live wrong, to kind of eternally feel like we're the victim, and to do really what feels good, right? To cut a person out of our lives or to give them a cold shoulder, uh, to, to, to sort of make them hurt like us, even in a small way, okay? But this really, what, what we're doing is we're sort of taking the same path that someone else has taken when they've offended or, or hurt us in the first place. And so we need to turn, we need to stop before we head down that path. We need to keep the sin from spreading. We have to quarantine the sin, if that makes sense, right? Not letting it take us over like it's a virus, because that's what sin is ultimately. It's a virus that spreads, it jumps from person to person, creating hurt and harm all over God's world. And when we stop the spread of it, we, we keep uh, more of that hurt from spreading to others. So Mirsaw Wolf, he is a, uh, he's, he's a uh, theologian, and he grew up in, um, the, in kind of during the ethnic civil wars in Yugoslavia, um, in, in, and I think it was in the 90s. And for some of us who, who are younger, um, you know, that wasn't a huge thing for us maybe, but I know at the time it was a, a massive worldwide event, these sort, of, uh, these sort of civil wars going on. And so he, he felt like he needed, to, in order to really embrace his Christianity. He had to know what to do with the fact that, that you know, how do I think about the people who, who were a part of this, that I lived through, that were maybe my enemies in this? And so he wrote a great book called Exclusion and Embrace. And inside of the book, he says this, for a victim to repent, right, to turn, okay, to turn from a potential path. That's what he's talking about here. For a victim to repent means not to allow the oppressors to determine the terms under which the conflict is carried out, the values around which the conflict is raging, and the means by which it is fought. Repentance thus empowers victims and disempowers the oppressors. Okay? It, it, it lets the victims take control of the situation as opposed to being act, you know, merely acted upon by an oppressor of some kind. And Esau Macaulay, in his book, uh, Reading While Black, uh, he says this, If you dig deep enough into any people's corporate or personal past, you will find wrong. In Christian theology, this plays out in the words of Paul. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, so what he's saying is, that, you know, despite the fact that we find ourselves victims many times, it, that doesn't necessarily make us completely innocent in the eyes of God. We have done our own wrongs to people. We have hurt other people ourselves. It is only by remembering that God's forgiveness cost him something that I find the divinely given power to pay the cost of forgiveness instead of revenge. The sword gives birth to the sword, but the cross breaks the wheel. And this is key, okay? Repentance and forgiveness, which will be our next point here, puts a road, road's closed sign up on the path of spreading sin, right? It breaks the wheel, which often we find ourselves on where, you know, we're at the bottom, someone else is at the top, and we're just trying to get to the top and get the other person on the bottom, okay? That's how so much hostility or so many bad relationships in our lives and, and in wider society go so often. And instead of being caught on that wheel, we need to break it, and that's ultimately what we're offered in the forgiveness of Jesus, 
okay? It, it, it is us, when we repent, what we're saying is, I could be like you, the one who hurt me. It's in me to do it, just like it's in all of us. We are all children of Adam and Eve, okay? We are all prone to the same sins, we're, and, and, and ultimately in need of forgiveness, one that has been divinely given to us by Jesus. Yet I refuse to live out your sin. I choose to be like Jesus instead of being like you. I will not be like you in viewing me or others as someone to be hurt, as people to be hurt, people who lack dignity or respect, someone worth hurting. I will forgive you and I will not view you like you viewed me. I will not walk the path you did. I will turn down. I will turn uh, before I go down it like you did. And so this prepares our hearts well for the third movement. Stopping the spread of sin, it, it, it leads us to forgiveness. Okay, forgiveness is choosing not to let the offender hold you captive in their sin against you. That's ultimately what it is. It's, it's releasing yourself from the grip of their sin against you and ultimately releasing them from your rage, okay, your anger, your hurt, and not uh, allowing the relationship to be, to be defined by that any longer, okay? And, and so, the, you know, this is what forgiveness isn't. It's important to know what it, what it isn't. It's not, you know, it's cool, let's just pretend it didn't happen, okay? No, that, that doesn't help anything. It's good for us to acknowledge and repent, even if it's something small. We want to, you know, brush it under the rug. This isn't really forgiveness, Okay? And this is where forgiveness is different than forgetting. I know sometimes you, know, you, you talk to people and you know, maybe their, their issue with, with forgiving someone is they think, well, I'm, forge- you know, I'm just, am I forgetting what they did to me? Like, is that all I'm doing with forgiveness? And this is, this is not at all what forgiveness is, okay? Because it's very, very aware of what happened, okay? And it's saying despite that, despite the fact that you hurt me, um, despite the fact that I know that this happened, that I can't live without the understanding of that, I'm choosing not to be controlled by it, especially in my treatment of this person now, the one who offended me. Now, this will take time, okay? And it should be difficult. In fact, if it's not difficult, if it's not sort of a challenge for you to get your heart to this place, um, you know, maybe you're not really reckoning with the hurt that's been done. It's good for this to be something we have to process through deeply, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be seeking to get here ultimately with people who've hurt us. Now, a couple of quick things. Again, I think it's important for us to understand what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Okay, forgiveness is not, and and I'm taking this from uh, Esau McCauley's book here, Reading While Black. Uh, forgiveness is not an invitation to continue to be abused or mistreated, okay? It's not, a, again, it's not forgetting, you know, pretending let's forget it happened. Let's go right back to it, and I'm going to let you continue to hurt me or abuse me uh, going forward, okay? That's not what it is, okay? And, and if you need a, you know, a reminder of this, like, uh, just think about the story of the Bible. It's a story about liberation, right? Whether it's from Pharaoh and Egypt uh, or whether it's from our own sin and the abuse that, that sin does to God's world over and over again. The whole point is liberation and removing people from situations where, where pain and suffering and hardship and, and abuse comes from. All right, so that should be the ultimate movement we take. And you can do that while still forgiving somebody. And second, is we're, comp- we're called to participate in helping those abused as a community. 
So if you think back to verse 3 of our passage today, remember what Paul is, is saying here. He wants these two women to sort of sort things out among themselves. But then he asks the community to take a stake in or ownership over, you know, having this be a place of reconciliation. Okay, we don't want, um, you know, let's say Eodia was the one who, you know, first harmed Syntyche. Paul does, er, does not want that to be the sort of way that things continue to go. He wants the community to take ownership over making sure that it's a safe place for both of them. Okay, and so we as a church have to make sure that we are not allowing people to continue to be abused or hurt. All right, that is not really what forgiveness leads us to. Now, forgiveness even goes further still here, okay? It stops the cycle of hostility um, by refusing to lock someone into their sin, okay? So again, going back to how we can respond sometimes to hurts that are done against us by sort of, you know, letting it fester within us, withholding forgiveness from someone who truly is honestly asking for it, who has, you know, repented, who has offered up a sincere apology. What we can do sometimes is we can withhold our forgiveness as a way of making them atone for what they've done and thus locking them into their sin, where you sort of play judge, jury, and executioner. And I think ultimately this is kind of, you know, the, the impulse that comes from a lot of cancel culture, right? Sort of this sort of, you know, we want to take justice in our own hands. We want to make sure that someone, you know, hurts or loses something for what they've done wrong, and we will refuse to forgive them, even if they seem sincere. Now, Elizabeth Brunig, she is a, uh, she's a Christian, but she writes opinion. Uh, she used to write for the Washington Post, the New York Times. Now I believe she's writing for the Atlantic. And she, she says this about the power of forgiveness and why it's so necessary uh, for us to forgive other people. If we continually deny people the opportunity to have an identity apart from their punish identity, right? This identity that we've, we've said, you sinned, you hurt me or you hurt someone else and you can only ever be defined by that identity. That's what she means by the punish identity. Then you're inviting them to permanently inhabit that failure. In other words, not to change. And even if they do change because they're good-hearted, they will not be able to reconcile with anyone as long as they are presented with an identity that is attached to their failure. When we forgive people, we are releasing them from that identity. We are giving them the opportunity to grow, to change, to become a new person. And so it's so important for us, for their good, to be willing to forgive. And finally, the last movement of reconciliation here is restoration. Okay, through restoration, we begin to build a new future together. Okay? This is, again, this can't always happen, right? It needs both people to walk down these three movements that we've talked about before this in order to get here. But what happens is we get to a place where we're walking down the path together, both choosing to turn from the path of hostility and instead choosing community. Now, often, this requires somehow making things right, Okay? Uh, and we have to, you know, uh, you know, wrestle with what this looks like. But I think there's a great story in the Gospels about this, and it's about uh, Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He, he's a Jewish man who has sort of sold out to the Roman people, okay? So Rome comes in, they impose these really heavy taxes on the Jewish people. No one likes it, but a few people sort of take jobs as being the official tax collectors for Rome and, and, and are, are, are tasked with getting the money from the Jewish people in their city and delivering it to Rome. 
And it was very common for these people to skim off the top and to sort of, you know, uh, make sure that they were living pretty, pretty uh, good lifestyles based off it. Rome didn't really have any sort of regulation over these tax collectors. So they were not, you know, the most liked people uh, in, the, in their own city. And again, they were kind of viewed as, as sellouts. And, and I mean, that's like, a, that's like a textbook definition of injustice, right? Okay, so Zacchaeus meets Jesus, and he's a short guy. He's got to climb a tree. You know, if you went to Sunday school, you probably heard the story. You maybe have a song that's playing in your head right now, just like I do. I'm not going to sing it, though. Um, okay, but, but Zacchaeus meets Jesus. He, is, he wants to meet Jesus so badly. And I think it's really cool because it shows that Zacchaeus had already been having a process of acknowledgement going on in his heart. Okay, the fact that he wanted to meet Jesus, he'd heard about Jesus' sort of program of forgiveness of sins, and he wants to be a part of that. He comes face to face with Jesus, and he says this. Uh, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. He comes to this place of seeing Jesus, of, uh, of experiencing forgiveness, of repenting and turning away from a path. And his first response, his initial response to it, is to make things right with the people he's wronged, okay? And he will now perform his job going forward in light of his own acknowledgement, repentance, forgiveness, and now his restoration back to the people that he is in this relationship with. It's part of his job, but he is going to do it in a way that honors Jesus, taking a completely different path in the course of it. Now, like I said, these movements of restoration for us as Christians will continue to be applied over and over and over again in our lives, in new situations, right? Um, situations will be big or small, right? They'll be with a friend or a spouse or a roommate, right? One-to-one, things that are maybe pretty easy to work through, um, but maybe we'll have to do it in other ways. We'll have to do it with groups of people, with friend groups, or with, you know, your entire family, or with coworkers, right? Um, and, and sometimes we'll find ourselves, right, having to take part in efforts that are going on larger in society of reconciliation of some kind, okay? And we're going to find ourselves on both sides of this. We're going to be victims sometimes, and we're going to be perpetrators. We have to be willing to admit, acknowledge that we're both of those things, okay? Following Jesus, I think, means um, being willing to, to be quick to take on both of those, but we won't encounter situations where these movements aren't appropriate, okay? There aren't any outlier situations that are just, you know, too far beyond, you know, uh, trying to move down the path of reconciliation if, as, if possible. Again, that's costly, right? It's a challenge. But like we've been talking about in Philippians, sacrifice is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it leads to life. Now, I you know, earlier this week, I was uh, listening to a podcast and I was learning a little bit more about evangelicalism, right? The movement of evangelicalism um, and kind of what it was founded on. I think this is, this is helpful as we sort of like have no real definition for evangelicalism anymore, okay? But when it started up, it was founded on a sensitivity to sort of the present experience of the Spirit, to God, what God was doing in the present time, okay? Uh, believing He's active, that his work is bubbling up around us, and we get to take part of that and experience it. And it means if we're going to follow in the footsteps of that tradition, that we follow where the Spirit leads. We're willing to admit or acknowledge the Spirit is moving in different ways in our midst. And when we sense that, we are willing to follow along with it, even if it's costly or uncomfortable sometimes for us to do it. 
And it's clear to me, I've felt this more and more, that as the Spirit moves in the world right now, a major area that the Spirit is moving is in the area of racial reconciliation. Okay? And that can be uncomfortable for many, right? Look, and we can look for reasons to resist that. But I think if we do care about the work of the Spirit, about these basic movements, we should be willing to head into that, okay? To apply uh, awareness, uh, acknowledgement, repentance, turning, forgiveness, restoration, you know, for, uh, for centuries worth of built-up ugliness and sin of racism that we find ourselves sort of coming face-to-face with. Right? This is going to be the answer for that as well. The same things that God has given us. And we take this serious at Res City, at our, at our pastor, elder, community group, leader levels. Right? We, we can't just pray for God to move and then not be willing to jump on board when we see the Spirit moving. And so this is an important way for us uh, to do this. Because reconciliation you know, about anything. It's not just about good theology, right? It's not just that we're reading our Bibles well, and we, we, we know, right? We see it show up a bunch of places, okay? Reconciliation is important because sin breaks the world, right? Sin breaks the world, and sin hurts people, right? Whether it's through lying through exploitation, violence, pride, domineering, racism, whether that's done at individual levels or at corporate levels, sin breaks the world. And reconciliation is God's response to that, to bring and mend his world back together again through his son Jesus and through those who follow him. And so um, let's be part of that. Let's be people who take that seriously and who are willing to live it out in our lives. Because we know it's not just good theology, it's not just something that we're told we should do because we read in our Bibles, but because the world desperately needs reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself. Lord, despite the fact that we sinned against you, despite the fact that we broke trust with you, God, you reconciled us back to yourself. You gave us the, the, the power to understand our part in that. You help us turn through your spirit. You forgive us, and uh, you, you make a path for restoration for us, God. And that's a path we walk through every single day as we follow Jesus, as we meet together in church, as we uh, gather together during the week as a church, and as we live it out in our own lives, God, uh, trying to follow Jesus and, and, and working for restoration in our world. Help us to know what it looks like for us to do that in our own lives, God, what you're, where you're calling us to restore things, to reconcile things, and give us the power to do it even when it's uncomfortable or costly to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.